Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. Or in today's special episode, I just asked them about their fascinating life. Today, it was my distinct pleasure of chatting with Dan Gilbert, Edgar Pierce Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. Dan is captivated by a single fact, the world is not as it appears, and he uses science to uncover the illusions people have about the world themselves and each other. He is a contributor of Time, the New York Times, and NPR's All Things Considered, and in 2014, science named him one of the world's 50 most followed scientists on social media. His TED Talks have been seen by more than 15 million people and remain among the most popular of all time. His popular book, Stumbling on Happiness, spent six months on the New York Times bestseller list and sold over a million copies worldwide. In this episode, I asked Dan about his life journey from a high school dropout to one of the most respected psychologists alive. What was Dan like as a child? How did he combine his passion for science fiction writing with an academic career? Dan shares how much his life was and is shaped by the people around him. How did he end up in such fruitful collaborations with people like Dan Wagner or Tim Wilson? What was it like writing a popular science book at a time when that was much less common than it is now? What is Dan's advice on teaching and writing? How does he decide an idea is worth pursuing? Hope you enjoy our conversation. Today, it is my honor to be speaking with Dan Gilbert, who is not just a professor, not just a psychologist, but according to Saul Kasson's forthcoming book, A Pillar of Social Psychology. My God, what an honor. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dan. I guess pillars feel a great burden because everything is balanced upon them. But for me, the burden is uh, being considered a pillar in the first place. <laughs> All right. How did you come to write this chapter that we are basing this conversation on? So today is a special episode. We are not just talking about your research. We are talking about your research journey, your life into psychology. How did you come to write this chapter about your life? Well, like every bad idea, this started with an invitation from a friend. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I am asked to write about myself, about my life, about my opinion. And I almost always turn down these opportunities. Because I just, I can think of so many other things I would rather write about. Almost everything to me is more interesting than me because I know so much about myself. But when a good friend says, will you help with this book that is meant to provide you know, short stories of the career trajectories of people who've been important in making our field, and it's meant as a gift for the next generation so they can learn whatever there is to learn, perhaps not to make our mistakes. It was a hard, hard thing to turn down. So I bit the bullet and wrote the chapter. I want to start even before the beginning of your chapter. Where were you born and raised? And what do you remember being like as a child? <laughs> well, um, I, I was born in Ithaca, New York, because my father was a graduate student at Cornell at the time. Uh, I was raised largely in the Chicago area. But, um, you know, I, I, I kind of should say I wasn't raised at all because I fought back 
against being raised so much that I think my parents would probably, uh, if they were still with us today, would say, we didn't raise that one. Uh, He raised himself. You know, by the age of 15, I'd already had it with school. I decided that uh, my teachers didn't know. I wouldn't say they didn't know anything, but they didn't know any of the things I cared about knowing. And they treated me like a little kid. You know, I had to show up at a certain time for classes and raise my hand to go to the bathroom. And I didn't feel like that person. I didn't want to be in school anymore. And uh, one day it occurred to me that all I had to do was walk out the door. (laughs) That the invisible forces holding me in school were entirely normative, but there were actually no constraints. So I did. I just walked out that door and never went back. So I was a high school dropout. I decided that um, it would be a lot more interesting to go travel around the United States than to sit still in Chicago. And, uh, and so I did. So I, I guess you, you, you implied that I was raised, but I think <laughs> parents would have disagreed. I didn't give in to uh, domestication very well. What were you doing the one year traveling the United States? Did you have any enlightened insights? Did you learn anything you still think about these days? Do you think, my God, what was I doing at that time? Oh, no, no. I mean, hugely important lessons. Important lessons for, at the time I was traveling around, I was you know, 16 to 17, I suppose. Um, hugely important lessons about life, about people. You know, we got a big old school bus and we ripped out all the seats and built bunk beds and put in a wood burning stove. And me and my friends just drove it around the country and lived in it and had adventures and met people. We read a lot of Eastern philosophy, which was all in vogue those days, trying to understand the meaning of life. And, you know, we played music and uh, tried every drug we could get our hands on. I really think had I not done that, I don't see that I would ever have taken the course that led me to this place where I am speaking with you. They were really important, formative experiences. Lucky I didn't die during any of it, but uh, it was risky. But on the other hand, it sure paid off. You're writing, every love affair with psychology starts with a blind date. My blind date was blinder than most. So from traveling around the country in this van, how did you end up in psychology? What did that first blind date look like? Well, yes. So I was a, you know, a peripatetic hippie traveling around uh, with no responsibilities. And then I ended up in Denver, Colorado with a wife and a child also known as responsibilities. At some point I decided, I think my brother talked me into it. He said, you know, you're a budding writer. Oh, I guess I've left that out, haven't I? Uh, I, I at the time, I would, my aspiration was to be a, a famous science fiction writer. And uh, he said, you're a budding writer. Maybe you ought to go down to a local community college. Even though you're a high school dropout, you can always take a course at a community college and you know, join a writing workshop or something like that. So I did. Went down to the community college, that is, but unfortunately, the writing workshop was full. But the nice lady at the desk informed me that there was a spot open in the psychology class. And so, I guess, in a fit of desperation, I just signed up for it. That's how blind my first blind date was. And that first course was somewhat interesting. There were parts of it that I thought were pretty cool. And you can guess the parts of it were not psychology, they were social psychology. That's what I knew I was hungry to learn more about. You write about your second date, right? So first date was okay-ish enough. You wanted to meet the person, the field, psychology, you wanted to meet it again. But now you had some more nuanced understanding. You knew it's really social psychology you care about. So you took social psychology classes and you write best 
second date ever. It was like seeing color for the very first time. Tell us about this experience. Well, that's my memory, at least. And I bet almost every one of us had this kind of epiphany experience in a class, this moment of revelation where we thought, holy cow, this is what I want to do. This professor who's telling me things, that's who I want to be. These researchers who learned all this stuff, they're my people. They're asking the questions I want to ask and getting the kinds of answers I want to get. At least I hope everyone in our field had that epiphany some moment in time rather than just figuring, well, seems like a pretty secure job. I certainly did. I'd been wandering around ever since I dropped out of high school, trying to figure out the nature of experience, the nature of mind and consciousness, uh, how it's situated in the social world. And I just read a lot of philosophy and so much of it was interesting and smart, but there was just no way to adjudicate who was right. You know, it seemed like in philosophy, the most silver-tongued person won the debate because they, and so who could ever beat Bertrand Russell at anything? Because he was just a marvelous writer. And that didn't seem satisfying to me. And so when I stumbled on a psychology class, and especially in this second date, social psychology, experimental social psychology, I thought, wow, these people are asking the right questions and they have a principled, disciplined method for getting the answers. Just because their answer sounds right, it doesn't have to be right. It has to prove itself to be right. I was pretty thrilled with that. My father was a scientist. He was a, a molecular geneticist. And my mother was an artist who uh, you know, was a, a playwright and a, a visual artist and a, a poet. And so I'd grown up between these two worlds. And it seemed to me that psychology was asking all the questions that are raised by the humanities, raised by great novels, great theater And then it was using all the methods of science to answer them. Like, this is the best world you could possibly be in. That was the feeling I had at the time. And were you still thinking you would be a science fiction writer at the time, but that psychology would be useful for it? Or was it dawning on you that, no, I will be a psychologist? I think pretty quickly I realized that it takes an extraordinary amount of talent to be a successful novelist, but that even without that, I could probably be a fine professor. I, I would stick to that. I think you don't have to be a genius to be a college professor, but you have to be brilliant to just be in that pantheon of novelists. A, I thought this is going to be an easier career path <laughs> than sending my stories to magazines and hoping somebody recognizes my brilliance, which I was quite aware I just didn't have as a, you know, as a fiction writer. But the other thing was there was something so alluring because I knew it would be a team sport. You know, writing fiction is a really lonely enterprise. You close the door, make everybody go away, and you and your characters commune and you type about it. And that's every day, all day for the rest of your life. Psychology, like any science, is something you're going to do with other people. So in college, I was able to get involved in a lab. Well, There's nothing, there's no analog for that in the world of fiction. Labs are really cool. They're full of smart, interesting people asking questions a lot like yours, and they teach you things and you teach them things, and it's a big party. It's fun. So academics looked A, easier and B, more fun. Um, that's a no brainer. I decided to go that direction. And I, I never wrote a 
I guess I, I, I would say I never wrote another science fiction story since I, there were editors at JPSP who said I was still writing science fiction, <laughs> <laughs> but that's another story. Do you still have those first stories you wrote and do you ever look back at them? Oh yeah. I mean, they were published, uh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're out there in magazines. Uh, I suppose they got read for five minutes while the magazines were current, but yeah, no, I have several of them. I'm on my website and every 10 or 15 years I go back and read them and feel both horror, like, oh my God, I thought that was interesting, but also admiration, a sense that I couldn't write fiction as well as that anymore. Tell us about the first research you got involved with. You mentioned several professors at your college that really inspired you and had a lasting impact on you and introduced you to the world of research. Well, you know, largely the introduction was through class. I did have the opportunity to work in a lab I think at the time, I mean, this is going back a long time, but I think at the time, I never really figured out what that meant. They would hand me things and ask me to do stuff with it, and I would do stuff with it, but I never quite understood what project this was a part of or what role I was playing. So that wasn't a very, that lab gave me a model for how not to run a lab. <laughs> but it kind of excited me about the idea that there was such a thing as a lab. This isn't entirely fair, by the way, because my father was a scientist. I grew up with an understanding of what a lab was. Uh, you know, his lab had all sorts of, you know, beakers and chemicals and machines in it. But uh, from the time I was little, I knew what a graduate student was. A graduate student was the person who passed out at the party on Friday and was still sleeping on the couch Saturday morning when I woke up to watch cartoons. <laughs> so I had some sense of that. So I think my introduction to labs was very, very early, but it wasn't in college. The real introduction was when I got to graduate school. And you got to graduate school at Princeton to work with Matt Jones. That's quite the person to work with from what you write about. So how, how did you manage that transition? How did you get into Princeton? And what did you feel like when you arrived at this place? Well, uh, you know, my God, I don't know how I got into Princeton. I can't imagine anybody with my lack of credentials getting into programs like that today. They just saw some kind of diamond in the rough and decided, let's take, we'll bring in a lot of highly qualified students and let's bring in this one crazy guy. <laughs> He writes science fiction. Let's see where that goes. I had the, you know, I was working with Ned Jones, who at the time was probably the world's most famous social psychologist. I mean, won every award. He was revered. I had no idea who he was. He picked me. I didn't pick him. And I didn't go to Princeton to work with him. In fact, I went to Princeton because they had really good housing. And so I thought, well, all the universities I can learn social psychology, this one has like a great place to live. Let's go there. So that's how I ended up at Princeton. And I had no idea what a privilege it was to work with Ned Jones until I'd been there a while. And the privilege was not just reputational. The privilege was quite real because this was a brilliant giving man who cared deeply about my ideas and my growth. We just had a great time together. And he really taught me what it meant to be a mentor. You know, mentor was the guy to whom Ulysses entrusted the care of his own son, Telemachus, when he went off to fight in the Trojan War. So mentor really means the person to whom you would give your child. And I always took that role very seriously because my mentor took it very seriously. Sorry, Eric, I can't remember what question you actually asked me. I'm sure I have an answer. Oh. If you could try again. 
I'm, I'm curious about your day-to-day -day life as a graduate student with Ned Jones. What did you do? Did you focus on coding every day? That wasn't even a thing back then, right? What was it like to be in grad school those days? You know, there, there's, uh, you would have had to have had a computer mm. in order to have coding, and none of us had those. We did our analysis of variance by hand, and uh, I think we had a computer terminal installed in the department at one point. But anyway, no, it was nothing like that. You know, I think we did the things that many graduate students today do, uh, I would hope. You read a lot, you talk a lot, and you run studies, right? I mean, that's the gist of it. And that was the gist of it when I was in graduate school in the early 1980s. I think the big difference is that we just didn't think much about careers. We just assumed if you go to graduate school, a good place, and you get a PhD, you get a job somewhere teaching psychology and doing research, and everything kind of works itself out. I don't think I gave any thought to getting a job or what I would have to do to get a job until pretty much it was upon me in my fourth year of graduate school. By the way, in those days, grad, a PhD program was four years long and there was no postdoc. So four years after entering, you were expected to be a professor. And I see graduate students today, and they're so deeply concerned about this. Maybe they should be. Maybe the markets have changed a lot. Or maybe they haven't changed quite that much, and something else has changed. But I feel sorry for graduate students today, worrying so much about, I must get 10 publications. We, didn't, we just figured you did experiments until they were ready to publish. And maybe that would be a paper or two. Never, it was inconceivable you would publish more than two or three papers if you were a graduate student. So the pressure was off a little bit. So as a result, graduate school for me was spending lots of time reading and lots of time just talking to my mentor about ideas and learning how to think about them, how to bottle them, turn them into experiments. So many good ideas just aren't the province of experimental psychology because they're not tractable in terms of experimentation. So you pass on those. What makes a good idea? He taught me that answering questions is easy. It's just finding questions worth answering that's hard. Uh, and he taught me a little bit about how to do that. So that's what I did in graduate school. For four years, I talked to Ned. And it was during that time that you, you and Ned came up with or talked about what you call the observer bias. And then some certain other people might call the fundamental attribution error. <laughs> Could you give us a little bit of the history of how that idea came about. Yeah, well, you know, Ned Jones and Victor Harris in 1967 published this landmark paper on attitude attribution in which they discovered what came to be known as the fundamental attribution error. And Lee Ross came up with that marvelous name for it. Ned fought back a little bit with his own label, the correspondence bias. But that was a little bit of good-natured headbutting, kind of like the Harvard-Yale football game. Everyone goes away and has a beer. Uh, the important thing was the phenomenon, not what it was called. And the phenomenon was no doubt important. People made mistakes when they tried to understand others. And there was a long list of them, but it turned out that many of them could be boiled down to one, which was the tendency to think that a person's behavior told you something about their enduring traits and dispositions. When in fact, so often, and this was the the underlying message of all classic social psychology, so often people's behavior was just a product of the situation they were in. You know, bystanders are in a hurry, and so they walk over a guy who's passed out in an alley. People are told by a snarling Stanley Milgram to shock the learner, and so they do. People are sitting around a table, and everyone else says line A looks longer than B, so Solomon Ash's subjects go along. 
situations are powerful. And the fact that in our daily lives, we don't seem to recognize this struck Ned and Lee Ross and many other social psychologists as very worthy of note. Is it correct to say that this was the most, like the key research you were focusing on, on in graduate school and that landed you the follow-up job in Texas? Well, it certainly was the key research I focused on in graduate school and for many years later. I'd like to think it was because it was the world's most important problem, but the truth is it's because my advisor thought it was the world's most important problem. And I had come to learn to see the world through his eyes. I mean, that would be a tall order. Could I see the world as Ned Jones does? Understand it through his eyes? I spent a lot of years trying to accomplish that. And so I was obsessed with this problem because it was my mentor's obsession, not because it was really the most important problem in the world. And it was really quite a while, and I would say several years into my first job, that I decided there were also some other problems in the world worth considering and new ways to see the world, not just through Ned's eyes. As you leave Princeton and move to Austin, you're right. The most important encounter you had was with someone called Dan Wagner. And you write, he was a man who had effortlessly combined my two separate passions, writing and science. I had no idea they could be one thing. It was like discovering that my wife and my lover were actually the same woman and that everything was right with the world after all. <laughs> that sounds like an amazing <laughs> encounter with an amazing person. Well, it really was. And now that I think of it, it's actually a short story by Isaac Bashiva Singer about a man whose lover turns out to be his wife. But let's not go there. This was meant to be a metaphor. It was meant to say that, you know, you're in love with two things that seem so separate and you feel torn. And then somebody shows you that they were one. Oh, uh, you know, going to the University of Texas at Austin in uh, 1985 was a godsend for me. I was lucky to get there. It was a, a pity job. I got no job. I got two job interviews and exactly no offers, except from a place where Ned Jones happened to have some good friends who apparently took pity on his hopeless student and decided how bad could it be to hire him for a few years. That's how I got a job. I was there. Many good things happened. Many smart and interesting people helped me. But there was, you're right, a single encounter that just changed my life. I, I had a good friend at the University of Texas at Austin, Bill Swan. And uh, one day he said, you know, I, I know a guy in San Antonio you ought to meet. He reminds me of you. I mean, he's, his name is Dan. He's fat and he smokes. And I thought, well, gosh, we, we have at least three things in common. <laughs> <laughs> so I met him and it was life changing. I mean, he became my dearest friend, remained so for 30 years until he died tragically of ALS after I was at Harvard and was able to bring him to Harvard to be my colleague, which was just a great joy. But he taught me a lot, and not by teaching, but by example. Dan was 10 years older than me. And I could see that he had an original mind, that he wrote exactly the way he wanted to write, not the way journal editors had told us we had to write. He wrote about the things that excited him, and he created problems de novo. You know, I had inherited the fundamental attribution error from Ned. It had always, I'd always thought that as scientists, we find a good problem in our field and work on it. And Dan Wenger showed me, no, you find a great problem in your mind and work on it. You find a great problem in the shopping mall and work on it. But it's already in the literature. Who wants to work on it? <laughs> and that just excited me. Could I write in a fun and exciting and engaging way about ideas that were just mine? 
I know that sounds so naive. Of the, the answer is, of course you can. But I didn't know it at the time. I'd never seen any examples of it until I met Dan Wagner and uh, started reading his work. So he taught me a lot. Now I understand from your biography that you were struggling to come up with your own ideas until you met another crucial person, someone called Tim Wilson, who you met on sabbatical, if I remember correctly. You, you are right. In fact, Tim Wilson was on sabbatical at Stanford. I was on sabbatical at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, which is just on top of a hill that overlooks Stanford. And uh, Tim says we had met once before, but I don't remember. It must have been a hello introduction at a conference or something. But I was on sabbatical. It's, I guess, 1991 now. Uh, and I know I want to make the transition to doing something really new. In the last, in the years prior to that, I'd been thinking a lot about expanding the model of attribution that my students and I had been working on. I'd written papers showing that it's in an expanded form. Its seeds were were in the philosophy of Spinoza and Descartes, and so I was spreading my wings. And I was l not writing about the fundamental attribution error per se. But I was looking for something really, really different, just a complete left turn from everything I've thought about. So I went and sat on the hill, lots of very smart people, and I spent all day thinking, if your mind is anything like mine, that usually leads you to cocktail hour because you know, I wasn't getting anywhere. And then I get a call from Tim Wilson, who says, hey, I'm down at the bottom of this hill at Stanford. Uh, how is it at the top? And I said, nobody here talks to me. He said, yeah, nobody here talks to me either. Why don't we talk to each other? So he came up for lunch and it was a glorious lunch. I loved talking to the guy. We just had so much fun putting our heads together. After a few lunches, we decided we had to work on something. So we started writing a chapter that eventually did get published and I think has been cited by approximately no one ever. But that wasn't the important product of our, our year-long set of lunches. It was creating a friendship and an intellectual linkage. We both went back to our respective institutions at the end of our sabbaticals, me to Texas and him to the University of Virginia. But we continued to harbor the idea that it would be fun to work together. Uh, and then that opportunity arose. And you're right that you two have a friendship outside of academia. It is not that you decided contractually in some transactional way, oh, it seems like we could publish together. It was more friendship than you happen to do science together. Well, it's always been that way. Um, somebody, somebody told us recently that they were not able in their analysis to find any um, a collaboration in social psychology that had been as enduring as ours. I didn't realize we'd set a longevity record of some kind, but we began working together that year We are still where I'm writing a paper with Tim now. And I don't know, it, when it gets published, it'll be, what, our 65th paper or something like that together. Really, since that day when we met, each of us has published some things without the other, but just not much. It's been 90% of everything we do has been together. When we're asked about the parameters of our collaboration, we just kind of scratch our heads because they never had any parameters. We never have once talked about the rules. We never once talked about how long it would last. We never even established a collaboration. We just kept working together because we kind of forgot to stop because we liked it. It was really fun. And we were getting twice as much done as we would alone. And it was so nice to have somebody to go through all of this with, to share the victories of, hey, we got it into science. 
and hate reviewer two as much as you do. <laughs> it's just fantastic. So it's just been a, a wonderful, wonderful ride with my friend. And I often look back and wonder how it is that 99.9% of my colleagues do this all by themselves. I wonder why. I feel like a married guy in a world of single people. And I just think, don't any of you understand the joys of coupling? <laughs> I shouldn't use that verb. <laughs> Poor Tim is going to take great offense at this. By coupling, <laughs> I, of course, just mean the marriage of true minds. Let no impediments be admitted. <laughs> so how do I find my Tim? Let's say I want to be coupled intellectually with someone. What do I do? Well, I, I don't think, I, 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 who knows is the right answer, but I, I suspect it's not quite like dating. I mean, I suspect that it's not quite like auditioning people as we do in a romantic level because our aim is to be a couple. But I do think having your eye out for collaboration. Now, lots of people collaborate, but at least my view is that it's rather promiscuous. Today, I collaborate with this person. Tomorrow, I collaborate with that person. You know, it's a, well, to extend our metaphor, it's extremely promiscuous polyamory. And my guess is that doesn't lead to the kind of lasting, enduring meeting of minds that you get if there's just one special person. I never collaborated with anyone but Tim, and he never collaborated with anyone but me, except, of course, with our graduate students, you know, our big combined lab, in a sense. We never worked with other people. And again, we never made a promise. I wouldn't have thought he was cheating on me if he wanted to work with somebody else. But we just developed such telepathy about ideas. The language that we could use to talk to each other was remarkably efficient. We could have a conversation in an hour that would have taken days with anyone else because we're speaking our secret code language and our interests are common and all our background is common. So I don't know, uh, Eric, if you or anybody should aim for it, but I will say that uh, my life with Tim Wilson proves that there is a model out there for that being done. It's very gratifying. One line of research you mention in this biography or this autobiographical chapter of yours is the work on effective forecasting and how it was born out of your own life circumstances. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the biographical background for this line of research? Well, sure. I mean, after I, Tim and I got back from that sabbatical, and I guess it must be 1992 now, a, a number of unfortunate personal circumstances conspired to, well, they tried to make me miserable. And they were a divorce. My son dropped out of high school. It was involved in a lot of, let's just say, bad stuff. One of my best friendships with a colleague and dear friend was just on the rails. Just a whole lot of stuff was going wrong in my life. And I had lunch one afternoon with a dear friend of mine, Jay Kohler, who was professor in the business school at the University of Texas. And you know, I told him all about this stuff. And then he confessed that he also had been having a terrible year with a similar set of circumstances. And then we paused and he said, well, how are you doing? And I said, Jay, I have to admit, I'm doing just fine. I mean, I'm really okay. Not the best year of my life, but I'm soldiering on. And he said, yeah, me too. And the weird thing is, I don't think I could have ever predicted this if you'd asked me a year ago. I would have thought these bad events would have just devastated me. And there was just that little ding sound when you know that somebody has just 
posed a really great question because he followed it up with, I wonder if people have any idea what will and won't make them happy. I assumed the answer had to be yes. So I go back to my office and I'm telling this story well because I wrote a document called Conversation with Jay Kohler and I put the date on it and I still own that document. So I know we had this conversation. I know exactly what we talked about. And at the end, I thought, this is a great question. I searched databases and I could not find an answer to it. How is it possible that happiness, this star by which we navigate, we guide our lives by what will make us happy, that psychologists don't know whether people can do this well or not, whether they can accurately predict what will or won't make them happy? How is it possible we don't have this answer? So I called Tim. He didn't have the answer either. He didn't know of research that had the answer. And uh, he said, well, why don't we try doing a study on it? Let's do a little study to see if people can predict their emotional reactions to, I don't even remember what it was, photographs, movies, something like that. He said, I'll run it here in Virginia. And if it works, we'll write a paper together, which we've always wanted to do, Dan. <laughs> well, it didn't work. It, it, the data were messy and weird and something happened for women that didn't happen for men. And we just scratched our head. We couldn't make sense of what we'd found. But then we had an idea for another study, and it worked, and another after that, and it worked. And soon a bunch of them had worked, and we wrote a paper on a topic, and we needed a name for it. So we came up with affective forecasting, which seems to have stuck. You know, now all these years later, there are thousands of papers on this particular topic in fields from medicine to law to economics. We ourselves have published, I don't know, dozens and dozens on the topic. Who knew? It would be such a propitious moment. But it's a great question. And recognizing a great question is the only thing that's important for being a good psychologist. Knowing it when you hear it or when it occurs to you. Answering it was the easy part. You do all this research, it gets published, it gets attention. And now, of course, you are a professor at Harvard. What was that transition like to move to Harvard? And how have you been thinking about your time at Harvard ever since? Oh, gosh, I didn't have the slightest interest in leaving Austin. I loved the university. I loved the town. I, I was, you know, I had a ponytail and I taught, you know, in shorts and sandals and uh, while smoking my pipe. Those were the days. Um, and I thought, you know, Harvard, that's like for a bunch of, you know, stuffy, rich Christian people who aren't me. You know, we often think about, you know, whether students feel like they belong. I didn't belong. I was a high school dropout. I didn't belong in a place like Harvard. So when they asked me, would you like to come give a talk? I thought, well, okay, I'll come give a talk, but I'm not really interested in the job. They offered me a job. And I think it took me almost two years to finally say yes. I really came very close to saying no. Uh, not because I didn't recognize it was a greater university, but because I didn't care about that. I had everything I wanted at Texas. I had good students. It was warm weather. I had breakfast tacos. I had my bicycle. I had what I loved in life. I called a dear friend, Gardner Lindsay, who was the original editor of the Handbook of Social Psychology. And he had been at Harvard and he'd been the chair there. He'd been at Texas. And I said, what do you think I ought to do? And he said, Daniel, I don't know whether you will stay at Harvard. But I know you will never regret having passed through. Mm. And I just thought, maybe he's right. 
almost every time in my life there's been an opportunity to either stay or change, I've chosen to change. And almost every time I look back and think, thank God I chose to change. So I did. I went to this place. I found out that all my stereotypes about it were utterly mistaken, that it was as warm and eclectic and inviting as any place you could be, that the people were as diverse and interesting and crazy and strange. And that if I really wanted to teach in shorts and sandals, that would have been just fine. By then, there was no smoking in the classroom, but (laughs) (laughs) the rest of it. So I'm sorry, Eric, I think your question was so big, like, how has your time at Harvard been? You realize you're you're asking me, uh, how have the last 25 years of your life been? <laughs> yes, we have five minutes left. Please, please. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just fine. Thank you. You decide at some point you want to write a book. What sparked the idea to write this book and what surprised you about the process? Um, I didn't have anything else to write. I, had, I was on sabbatical. My wife was a consultant who happened to be stationed in New York City. So I went to... Uh, spend a month or two with her in her apartment in New York. And the apartment was, you know, approximately four feet by four feet. So you had to get out all day. Uh, So I would sit in Starbucks and just one day I was between papers and there was nothing to grade. And I thought, wow, I don't have anything to work on today. So I just thought maybe I'll write like a little essay on what I know about affective forecasting. Wouldn't that be fun? And what if I just wrote it for like ordinary people, like my students, the people I teach, the undergraduates I teach in my classroom, instead of writing it for other scientists that never done something like that. And uh, so I spent the day in that Starbucks drafting what ultimately became the introduction to Stumbling on Happiness. I didn't know it at the time. I was just writing. And uh, at the end of the day, what I had learned was that what I had remembered was how much I loved writing for ordinary people in ordinary language, something that is on the front of your mind when you're writing fiction, but can get pushed to the back of your mind when you're writing science for other scientists. Other scientists want to know that what you're saying is true. And so as you're writing, you're always going, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Ordinary readers already believe everything you say is true because after all, you're the authority. They want to know that it's interesting. They want to know that it's worth their time. They want to know that they should stay with the page and turn it. So it's a whole, you're thinking, well, how can I make this as exciting and interesting and engaging a story as it could possibly be? It's a whole different set of demands. And at the end of the day at Starbucks, I realized I just loved doing that. I'd forgotten how much. So uh, I was there for months. So I just kept going back to Starbucks and I kept writing and writing and writing. And at the end of some period of time, I had you know a couple of hundred pages written and I realized it was now a book, but I didn't know how I was going to finish it. So I just put it in a drawer. And I don't know, maybe a year or so later, I came back to it and thought, oh, I know how to finish this book now. And I did. And then I went in search of a publisher. Almost everybody in the world now has an idea. Then a publisher gives you some money and a clock starts to tick and you're miserable as you have to start writing your book because there's a clock ticking and they've already paid you. I'm so grateful that I did it the other way around. I wrote a book And when it was done, I went in search of somebody who wanted to publish. I got to write it as I wanted, at my pace. I didn't have to finish it if I didn't want to. It was great. I had a lot of fun. You talk about writing. You talk about how you approach questions and science. I want to add, of course, at Harvard, you are also famous for teaching introduction to psychology. 
and for how you teach it and how engaging your courses. Now, I have seen you teach. I have seen you give talks. I have read your writing. I have talked to you. You can tell me I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there's a certain consistent personality throughout, a certain um, consistent voice of Dan Gilbert throughout, of how you approach questions in life, of how you communicate with stories uh, that is really similar across those domains. Is that how you conceptualize speaking versus writing and teaching, or do you see these as very separate domains? Well, you know, they do have some differences, of course. That's why you have different words for them. But you're exactly right, Eric. There has to be a consistency. You know, the, the greatest compliment I ever got on my book, Stumbling on Happiness, was from the wife of a colleague. She said, you know, reading your book is like, I just feel like it's, it's like a conversation with Dan, except that you can't talk back. And then my colleague interjected, how's that different than any other conversation <laughs> with Dan? <laughs> But I thought it was a great compliment because she was saying, I just hear you talking. It's just you. And indeed, when I'm asked for public speaking advice or teaching, which is a form of public speaking advice, I always say there's just two things. One, be super prepared. You know, really know what you're talking about. Don't wing it. Know way more than your audience. Practice, 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 practice. Anybody who tells you you're going to get stale is an idiot. Practice more. But the other thing is you must do it in your own voice. The only voice worth writing in or speaking in is yours. And you will notice that every speaker who speaks authentically in their voice is charming, whatever that voice is, whether it's, you know, Mazarin Banaji in these kind of velvet stentorian tones, or it's Paul Rosen kind of leaping from one idea to the other and loud and crazy. That's because that's who those people are in their everyday lives. And an audience can sense this, whether you're speaking to them directly or writing for them. They know when you're full of shit. So don't be full of shit. Be you. Whatever your voice is, it's one that if you are prepared and know what you're talking about, has something to say. I do think writing, I think giving TED Talks, uh, I think it's all the same thing. It's talking to people who don't already know a lot about your subject in a way that will engage them, that will make them realize it's as thrilling as you think it is, and that will educate them, that will tell them something they didn't already know. What more can you ask from a book or a lecture? We started this conversation talking about how you were born at the very beginning of your life. Now we are roughly in the present. What does the future hold? What are your plans for the future? <laughs> um, I have never had a map. I've spent my entire life wandering aimlessly, you know, like, like a lost tourist in a city. And then you smell a croissant and you go, bakery. And, you know, if I'd had a plan, I would have, for God's sakes, I would have executed it. And I would never have ended up here. I really think the most exciting thing in life and also in science is to wake up each day and do a thing you think is interesting, but have your eyes and ears open for the thing that's even more interesting than that. And sometimes it presents itself to you. When it does, follow it. Just change your research program because suddenly something else seems so much more exciting. Go to a different university because suddenly it seems like a, a great opportunity that you've never explored before. I don't mean to say this is a prescription for anyone's life but my own, but you've asked me about mine. I am so glad that my plan was not to have one. So at every point when some interviewer has said, what are you going to do next? I've said, hell if I know, 
We'll find out tomorrow when I get to the lab and a student and I sit down to talk and I say, what have you been thinking about? What's on your mind? Have you noticed what's been happening lately in Europe or whatever? That's where our idea will come from. It's easy to say what I'm working on, but it's not easy to say what I'll be working on tomorrow. Fair enough. Rather than simulating the future, let's simulate the past. What is one thing you wish you had known at the beginning of your career in psychology? Where now you say, oh God, if only I have known this, things would have been different. <laughs> well, either the list is long or there's nothing on it. It's either long because I've learned so many things that could have benefited a younger version of myself. Everything from how to craft a sentence to be kind to the staff members. I mean, every, the list is very long. On the other hand, life is a journey of discovery. And if you're saying, I can give you all the, I can give your young self all the things that you spent all this time discovering, I would say, how dare you? Don't take that journey away from me. Discovering them was great fun. So if I could go back and tell my young self anything, I would probably not tell it anything. <laughs> I'd say exercise a little more and stop smoking cigars, <laughs> but nothing deep. All those secrets, I want him to find them. Would you give the same advice to just young researchers in the field right now who are curious about a career in psychology? No, I, I mean, I think I would tell any young researcher to keep this in mind. If you are smart enough to be a psychologist, you're smart enough to be a lot of things that pay a lot more money. That means unless you are really loving this, you're stupid. You took a big salary hit for no good reason. Now, there's no reason not to love this unless you make yourself not love it. If you say, I have, to, I have to write these kinds of papers in order to get tenure. I have to do more of this. I have to do more of that. I won't be famous unless I do the following. Then what you have just done is you've taken the only reward about this job, which is its intrinsic joy, and thrown it away. If you're going to do that, go be a lawyer. They're pretty miserable, but at least they can retire early. Don't make this job into something that isn't a joy. because. It really ought to be. Every day you're talking to bright, interesting people who are hungry to know what you know, eager to tell you their ideas. You get to pick your own direction, sail the boat, any, you know, any place in the compass that interests you. This is a great, great career. But if you've allowed career pressures to turn it into something unpleasant, then quit. Get out. Go do something you could do. I guarantee You'd go through dental school tomorrow really easily. You'll have a good practice. You'll make money. You can be in Aruba by the time you're 55. If it's not fun, don't do it. But if it's not fun, ask yourself why. And I think the answer is almost always, you've made it not fun. I have one final question, Dan. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. All right. Do I get a lifeline? <laughs> <laughs> How do you know a research idea is worth pursuing? There's many ideas out there. I certainly feel like I have a lot of ideas 
turns out many of them are not as interesting as they could have been. Much research is needed. How do I know a research idea is worth pursuing? Well, you know, of course, if there were a perfect answer to that question, then I would have already written it down. You would know it. And the entire field would be filled with people who only pursued good ideas. It's a million-dollar question. How do we know what, which ideas are good? And what does good even mean? Is an idea good if, nobody, if you can't convince anybody else it's interesting? I think not. I mean, I think a song that no one hears was not worth writing. And that's why I think science communication is as much a part of science as the doing of it. If you can't tell others about what you did and why it's interesting, you may as well not have done it. The truth dies with you. How do you know a good idea? For me, it really is very affective. As soon as it's articulated in a certain way, I can just feel the hairs on my neck stand up. I lean forward in my chair and I think, oh, that's delicious. I want to play with that. I want to write about that. I want to tell people about that. I am so excited about that. That's so cool. Now, almost always, your enthusiasm will cool by the next day. That's the way it is. But you got to have it to start with. A good idea is one where your enthusiasm just keeps building rather than cooling. When you tell other people about it, they go, oh, huh, I never thought about that. Rather than, oh, Leon Festinger said that in his 1974 paper, right? If, if your initial idea can survive all these hurdles, other people don't keep telling you that they've already heard it, that it's been done, and your enthusiasm stays high, you should pursue it. Is it a guarantee it's a good idea? No, it's a guarantee you're going to have fun. And that's what the job is about. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and for making the time, Dan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.